the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Right now, there's a situation brewing in the men's basic department. Men are being held hostage by overpriced brands that simply aren't mission-tested. That's why we're excited to tell you about Undertack, the only brand that's literally been battle-tested by special forces. These have to be the greatest boxers ever made because they cover all the bases. High-quality material that's antibacterial, anti-pilling, and moisture-wicking so you stay fresh and dry all day. Uh, I recently did a 30-mile run in preparation for an ultramarathon in a couple weeks wearing the Recon boxers, and they were absolutely incredible. I loved them. They have a quick-release fly and a secret pocket in the extra-wide waistband for cash or tactical necessities. Undertack is durable, ultralight, fade-resistant, and shrink-resistant. And here's the best part, they're almost 30% less than the competition. Go to getundertack.com. That's getundertack.com right now. Save 20% off your order with the offer code SITREP20. All one word, SITREP20. Satisfaction guaranteed or your money back. That is a great American company that's unapologetically pro-America, pro-Second Amendment, and pro-military. That's getundertack.com. GetUndertack.com, offer code SITREP20. Welcome to the Situation Report today. Very glad to have you with me. This is the show where we do our best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stolnicker. I am your host today and very excited to have on a guest that we have had on before. We are going to talk today about the economy. That's something that is on everyone's mind. If you are buying food or buying fuel, if you are paying your mortgage or considering buying a house, you are thinking about the economy. We're all thinking about the economy. And as there is uncertainty around the world, uh, I think for many of us, we're asking the question, what is going to happen not tomorrow or next week, but down the road, three months from now, five months from now, a year from now, where are we headed? And I'm very grateful to have on with us once again, Tho Bishop. Tho has been with us before and uh, really excited about this conversation, hopefully shedding some light on the craziness that we're all living through right now. Tho is the assistant editor for the Mises Wire. He has served as deputy communications director for the House Financial Services Committee, writes and speaks on the economy, government, and culture. Tho, thank you again for joining us. Really appreciate having you back. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to talking to you, Jeremy. Yes, sir. Uh, This is a crazy time uh, for everyone involved. (laughs) involved. The economy, I don't think that it's ever not the story, but it's the story in a bigger way, perhaps, than it has been in a while. Uh, let's start with kind of where we left off last, last time, if that's okay. We, we last time talked about supply chain issues, and that was, that was the big story. Are we going to have what we need? What, what's holding it up? What is causing the issues that we're experiencing with the supply chain? Uh, clearly, we're in a different place now. But as it relates specifically to that, so we'll start there. Uh, what, if anything, has changed and 
why? We've got other supply issues right now, but we were talking about this a couple of months ago. Uh, what's changed in that regard? Well, the thing is we've seen a lot of the, the same uh, fundamentals continue. You know, that there has been uh, still a lot of delays even prior to uh, the Ukraine uh, issue. Um, it, it was clearing up in some areas, particularly chip shortages and things like that, that played a major role in uh, the autom automobile industry and some of the difficulties over there. Um, but the issue is that since a big motivating force of these supply chain issues has been the inflationary environment that the world had you know, been experiencing after the fallout of you know, everything done after, you know, in response to COVID, you still had a lot of vulnerability with uh, you know, distortions between inventory and demand and, and, and these sort of issues. And the problem is, and the scary thing is that when we look at what has, you know, the, the Ukraine crisis amplified, a lot of the important uh, supply uh, economies, markets dealing with food and other sort of matters, these were industries that had that were still not fully recovered from these prior mm, supply right. chain issues that we'd had, you know, before Putin decided to, to invade uh, uh, his, his neighbor. And so again, yeah. there's, there's, this really is, from an economic lens, um, there's a lot of overlap between these two crises that we're now experiencing. We are looking at interest rate increases. This is uh, kind of the plan for fixing some of this. Can you explain to me, and I'll assume to some in our audience, uh, why that is supposed to be helpful and if it is going to be helpful? So why is that the go-to? And then do you think it will have the intended result? Well, historically, the way that and the easiest way to think about interest rates is kind of, you know, kind of a, a pedal in a car, right? You know, you, you, you cut rates when you want the economy to go faster and you raise interest rates when you're trying to slow it down. And so that is basically the motivating factor here, right? We see inflation go up to a politically inconvenient number, right? You have the official numbers getting close to 8%, right. um, which yeah, you know, right. that, that, that official number there has some very interesting quirks in itself, um, but that's enough to get politicians to, to act, right? And so you increase interest rates, and just as important, you project uh, confidence that you are going to do further interest rates increases to help try to slow down and cool down this economy. The problem is that for one, if you look at kind of the historical chart of uh, the Fed's over market, you know, uh, Fed's fund rate, um, you know, we are still at crazy historic lows because of how far out of the norm we've been for you know, ever since the financial crisis, right? So even though the Fed is right. is trying to act like, you know, we're really determined to do something about inflation, and and so we might even increase by fifty basis points, you know, twice as much as normal. Um, to try to get control of the situation. I mean, they're still talking about, you know, in the most aggressive forecast, interest rates that are far lower than anything that we had seen in history prior to our response to the financial crisis of 08. And, and so you know, this is kind of where the Fed's in a box as well, because with these interest rate increases, you are creating stresses in other markets, right? If, if you look at, for example, the cost of, of mortgage rates after this very small minor yeah federal funds increase, you know, that's now skyrocketing the rates that we haven't seen in years, which creates pressure in the housing market, which creates uh, a pressure to, you know, all these uh, Americans that that have the one thing they can kind of take pride on is the fact that their home 
you know, owner or their, their home has yeah. gone up in value, right? So they they can feel a lot wealthier yeah, right. than uh, perhaps all their other assets are looking at right now. Well, that's now threatened. So that the Fed, you know, as they they uh, do these very small increases upwards, they risk kind of poking some of these bubbles that have formed. The, the other side of it, though, is that the Fed doesn't do it, right? I, I think there was probably, you know, when you're dealing particularly with this uh, this geopolitical risk, there are a lot of warning signs about a recession. You typically do not want to increase rates going into a recession. If the Fed doesn't follow yeah. through, then you have issues with confidence on whether they're going to be able to handle inflation at all. And so the, the Fed's, you know, kind of in a very difficult situation going both ways which is you know, one of the reasons why there's been a lot of warnings for a very long time that the Fed's a very aggressive use of yep. monetary policy is going to create some bigger issues down the line. What other tools are available to help curb this inflation that, again, to us seems out of control? I remember my parents, uh, when they bought their first house, they were talking about their interest rate, and it was something crazy like, 12 percent mm-hmm. they got their house for 12 percent or something we're way off of that obviously but this is impacting a lot of people right now what other tools are available if if it's not increasing interest rates what else can we do or what else can be done well there's another scary side of things because if, if you know, force if you know, mortgages ever got to that sort of old you know there's those traditional norms then the valuations yeah. that you would have for the houses uh, would go down, right? Because higher interest rates means that uh, you know that's mm-hmm. less money yep. that would otherwise go to the home buyer, right? If they can mark up the price, um, that's why. And unfortunately, for a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of millennials out there, they don't own houses. Um, you know, even if housing prices go down, if that's correlated with mortgage rate increases, I mean, they're not going to be the benefactors. Sure. It's going to be black sure. rock and these people that can pay cash for houses. They're going to be the big benefactor there. But in terms yeah. of other things, the Fed can do, or that, that can be done on the inflation side of things. You know there are kind of two different ways to go. On one, you have you could you could try um, price controls, right? Which uh, uh, is you know ha- has has very dire consequences, right? Like that leads directly to shortages and the like. Um, and so, but that that is one tool that you know it, 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 it gets to a certain extent where you would hope that policymakers have learned from obvious historical examples of bad policy, but yet you know they still kind of haunt around. There's been talk about oh we need to embrace price yeah. controls. Um, particularly in, in the housing issue, among others, that's one way they could go. They could also go for, you know, perhaps some sort of subsidization package, right? Uh, I know you've already seen states talk about, uh, uh, you know, giving money back to residents to try to help offset increased gas prices, right? You know, kind of, you know Ukrainian bucks in, in a way. Um, the problem is, is that, yeah, of course, that right. relies on additional <laughs> right. government spending, right? If that becomes federalized, that's going to require money right. printing, right? So that kind of just fuels the beast. You know, if we want to look at something that can actually be done, it's, it gets gets us to supply chain or supply side sort of issues, right? I mean, one of the things that's fueling the energy crisis that we have and and, and has made Russia have a lot of leverage when we're dealing with sort of the geopolitics uh, from an economic perspective, yep. it's precisely the fact that Europe, you know, prioritized the uh, the complaints of Greta Thunberg and the Green Party pol- uh, parties out there rather than looking at the long-term best interests of their country's right. economic well-being, right? So we've, we've seen the closure of nuclear power plants. We've seen uh, a focusing on subsidized green energies rather than good yep. old tried-and-true methods of energy production. We've seen the way that the Biden administration right. has dramatically decreased America's own ability to be energy independent. 
And so until we get serious about adjusting these policies that have diminished our ability to take advantage of and to utilize the resources that we have as Americans, then we're going to end up siding with some of these really, really bad policies over here. The good thing, though, is that you know, since a lot of these problems are the product of policy choices, in theory, they can be mitigated, right? They, they can be reversed. We can help you know, create a, a, a better functioning economy um, that just is going to require political will. Um, that's something that obviously can't be done yeah. at the federal level. And unfortunately, there's limits to what states can do. Um, though I'm, I'm excited at any attempt to to try to uh, to pressure the federal government to, to for states to sure. take a more aggressive role in some of stuff. Yeah, sure. Yeah, policy. It, it always comes back to policy issues, which uh, is really interesting right now because the Biden administration is blaming our current economic issues, inflation, high gas prices, uh, the supply stuff, all of it, on what's happening in Ukraine. And um, I think most of us who would listen to this show probably and would care about these things from a conservative perspective would say, yeah, that's not the problem. Um, but that is the, the message. That's what's being put out there. Um, can you take some time and, and break down what impact is the, the crisis in Ukraine having on our economy? Why is it having that impact? And um, what is... What issues are we having absent the problems in Ukraine? I guess if, if that makes sense. Biden is saying it's all about Ukraine. It's all about Ukraine. It's all about Ukraine. Let's blame Russia. Let's blame Russia. How much of that is Russia's fault and how much of it is not? Well, most of what we've already talked about, these are not related to Ukraine at all. Um, there, there are some specific issues that I'll get into that, that are mitigated by it, but like, that are amplified by that. But you know, most of these problems, the Fed has backed itself in. Um, you know, the issues with, with domestic energy production, all these sort of things are self-sabotaging policies that predate anything Putin did, um, you, know, in, yeah. you know, invading uh, Ukraine itself. Additionally, you know, the economic consequences of this are completely separate from, you know, the, the horrors of war and, and you, know, you know, Putin, you know, lobbing, you know, ballistic missiles into to cities, right? So, so regardless of right, one's right. opinion, of Putin as a very, very bad man, right? Um, that con those concerns are independent from the economic consequences of America and the West more broadly, their policy reaction to what's gone on in Ukraine. Mm, and and yeah. so if we look at that, yeah. then the, the, the danger is, is that you have a lot of politicians at the federal level who are prioritizing their own moral outrage. And again, which I think is, is right, you know, is, is proper, at Russia's invasion, they're not taking into account sure. the economic yep. consequences it's going to have on their own constituents, on Americans. They are prioritizing uh, uh, their condemnation of Russia above the best interests of their constituents. And, and yeah, this is exactly, in, many, in a very similar way, that the same disaster we saw with COVID, right, where concerns, right. Again, valid right. concerns right. about public health and, and the common good and all that trumpeted or trumped any economic concerns about the, the blowback from lockdowns and, and mandates and, and all those things. And so if we look at yep. you know, Ukraine and Russia, yep. you know, number one issue is food, right? You know, and, and this is something that we're not going to see the full impact of until several months from now, right? There's a delayed impact structure of production of food supply, right? This is not something we're going to feel immediately the same way we have gas prices, which itself is, is a direct tax on the American working class. Uh, but on the food supply issue, 
you know, not only is it the way that, you know, uh, the role that Russia plays in wheat production and, and all the agricultural products we get from Ukraine and Russia itself, Ukraine, particularly the east side uh, of, of the country being a, a very strong farmland in itself. Um, but you yep. think about fertilizer issues, right, which go to directly to American food production. Um, if you look at uh, mm. some of the key yeah. uh, fertilizer components, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, I mean, these have all skyrocketed. Um, if you look at indexes that kind of measure the cost of fertilizer, it's up 300% over what it was this time last year. Um, it, yeah. Even, even more interestingly, China as a marketplace, they were cutting back their own exports of fertilizer-related materials prior to this, at, you know, at the end of 2021, because of some of these you know, prior supply chain issues. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, you know, the Roundup sort of weed killer sort of thing that goes important to pesticides, um, you know, Bayer, which is the parent company of Monsanto, they were warning customers in late 2021 about shortages, again, prior to this, uh, a lot of the components that make up this uh, uh, pest yeah. control agents, you know, they come from, you know, Russia and, and Belarus in Ukraine, yeah, right. I mean, uh, uh, right. Belarus is the, the third largest supplier of potash, uh, uh, potassium uh, supplements in, in, in uh, wow. the world. Russia is the second largest, right? Yeah. So we're dealing with major, major world actors for vital resources needed for the cultivating of food. And, and again, this is something that we're going to see down the line. There, there's no way of making this up with some sort of policy change or, or buying fertilizer from Venezuela or whatever sort of, of, of program that yeah. Biden's trying to pull out yeah. on, on the gas side of things. But then the gas prices itself plays a major role because diesel uh, fuel prices, which are uh, goes directly to food, uh, uh, to, to farm equipment, um, as well as kind of the, the trucking aspect and logistics side of, uh, of, of the equation as well. I mean, diesel prices are, are way, way up because of the different components needed for diesel refining uh, and their requirement, you know, they're, they're, uh, uh, where they're dependent upon some of these other areas. So we've got a major, major geopolitical problem. And I think these are all considerations uh, uh, that Putin you know, baked into the cake when he decided to take a stand that he knew was going to spark this sort of financial war from America and the West. And you know, I, I'm not, I'm concerned to the degree to which our just policymakers have taken similar consideration, particularly given their track record with COVID. What is the answer for that? Is it the war in Ukraine ends and we just live through it and get to the other side of it? Or is there something more immediate that can be done? I'm, I'm afraid that that's not even going to be enough. I, I, I don't know what the solution to this is right now because it's not like we can just, you know, we can subsidize a new phosphorus plant in Kansas using, you know, using a lot of, of government money. Right. You know, which, which would have its own consequences. Right. right? But, you know, like, you, you know, perhaps sure. you can subsidize your way into a very inefficient uh, industry uh, for, for national security issues. It's, it's hard to do that with raw materials. Right. And, and what concerns me is that and we should we should all be praying for peace in Ukraine for, for a variety of reasons that transcend you know, materialism and, and economic well-being. Yeah. Um, yeah. But right, right. E even if that happened tomorrow and, and you had peace talks and, and you know, Russian troops left, uh, uh, you know, stopped pounding Kiev and, and, and you know, life came yeah. back to normal. I'm not sure if, I, I don't know what allows the West to drop sanctions on Russia. Right? I, I, it, I don't, I don't right. see any off-ramp right. there because what, what has happened is that, you know, not only do you have this component where the West has perfected financial warfare 
you know, starting off with debanking uh, uh, funders of, of Al Qaeda, then it, it moved to North Korea and Iran, yeah. and, and now being used on Russia, which is an economy yeah. much larger in scale, um, and then also being used against you know their domestic enemies, particularly as we saw with uh, Canada uh, truckers, right? You know, there's a lot of these similar tools at play yeah. by Western regimes, yeah. um, but you're also in this dynamic where the West can't even seem to fathom, you know, coexistence with Putin's Russia. Because, you know, the, the values that Putin has, um, which I, I think some of the, the, the nationalist aspects of Putin can be overstated by certain parts of the right. You know, I think this is an imperialist move. This isn't a, a nationalist Russian sort of move. But there's a lot of those the values that Russia has are completely, you know, you know and, and a lot of people in Russia see it as a war against the secular West. And I don't know what sort of conditions that Putin can have that don't require embarrassing Russia that is going to allow the West to uncancel Russia and un effectively uncanceling yeah. Russia and uncanceling Putin is the only way in theory to open back up these supply chains. And that itself presumes that, that Putin is going to prioritize that. Now, there's, there's a lot of economic incentives that he would have to do so. And so I'm not going to suggest that, you know, he, he's got you know, all the strength here. Um, but I could also see a situation where, where Putin uses this as a means of, of making his enemies pay. And, and that is a very dangerous environment because, you know, for all the yep. issues that we've had with foreign policy in America and elsewhere, um, you know, over the past century, I do think that the State Department of old had a lot more appreciation for the virtues of coexistence than the, you know, products of the modern American university system, um, which is kind of has this, this progressive, almost religious war aspect uh, to yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of the cultural aspects of Russia. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking, a lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA and they'll try to get, you know, prescription medications to help with PTSD, you know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like, I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went, and I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, these men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. 
Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Do you think that the calls for a regime change in Russia, that that plays into this, that that's the out for the West? If the regime changes, then we can drop the sanctions and get back to business? Ultimately, I think there's a lot of people, I I think there's a dangerous number of people in Washington who see that as the end result. Um, The issue is that Putin is not Gaddafi. They haven't been able to force out the Kim regime. I I don't think they're going to force out Putin, particularly when the people that have been pressured from the West the most are the Russian oligarchs. And, you know, while, you know, yeah. perhaps the idea yeah. is that, you know, you, you, you tick off, you know, the, the right one super rich Russian billionaire, you know, that, that he can get something done in a, in a bloody manner, right, a, a non-political manner. And maybe that's that's the, the heroic moment in the eyes of a Lindsey Graham, right? I mean, yeah, I think he was tweeting about this a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. Um, you know, yeah, I, right. I don't I don't right. think for one, if, if you are a Russian oligarch, you have not done so at this point because of courage. Um you, you, you've done so precisely because of your ability to play ball. Um, the other side of those that the Russian right. people don't support the oligarchs over Putin, and, and particularly the, the non-Western, the, the least, mm-hmm. the less culturally Western you are, the more you're likely to support what Putin is doing. And that gets to that another dynamic here, where you know you've had all these corporations, these Western corporations, leave Russia as an attempt to punish Russia because of Putin's aggressions. Well, in the eyes of many in Russia. They view this as its own form of victory because in doing so, they, this now provides an opportunity for Russia to create parallel, you know, to, to, to nationalize this capital that international corporations have invested in their, in their country and then apply this for you know, explicitly Russian sort of ends, right? And, and you know, uh, uh, yep. that's a, it, because in, in many ways, right, you know, the, 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 what, what marked truly the end of the Soviet Union you know, was the first McDonald's in Moscow, you know, and, 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 and hmm. Russian leaders on Pizza Hut commercials um, in, in much the same way that this has been seen as this great victory for, you know, American yeah, liberalism. This was seen as a great embarrassment yep. to a lot of these conservative Russians. And those are the ones that are running the show in a big way right now. And Russia has recently said that they won't accept the American dollar as a currency anymore if I'm correct on that. And so they have already taken the steps to set up a parallel economy with countries like China and India and some other countries. How does that impact our ability to pull out of this later on? That that has to be devastating in the short term and maybe even in the long term. Well, again, this is, goes back to the dangers that America has created by its, its over-reliance upon sanctions and financial warfare of the last 20 years. Um, and what's interesting is that if you look back, you know, it, it hasn't simply been Russia and China and, you know, obvious political rivals that have been warning about this. You know, I think it was in 2018, Mark Carney of the Bank of England, right? You know, who, one of our bigger friends out yeah. there, he was yeah. saying the international community <laughs> must right. look beyond the dollar because of the American government's willingness to explicitly uh, abuse its position as, an, as a global reserve currency for political ends. Now, he was critiquing Trump at that point because of trade wars, but you know, the, the, the consequences, sure, I mean, the, sure. the mechanisms are very much the same. And so what's happened is that yeah. you know, uh, when America cut Russia out of SWIFT, which was the thing they first did for Iran, right? So the, 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 they, they've gotten used to this. Um, Russia was prepared, right? 
And one of the tools that Russia's using and, and depending upon right now is their economic relationship with China in particular, right? China is, is increasing purchases of certain you know, uh, Russian assets. Right. Um, uh, there's more willingness right. for them to deal with currencies outside of America or Europe's control. Um, uh, gold has played a role in this. Uh, Russia has, trans has moved away from dollar holdings to gold. This has proved to be a very smart decision because a lot of Russia's foreign cash reserves, right? So again, not simply dollars, but euros and, and other international currencies, uh, a lot of those have been frozen by the Fed-controlled international Western mm. banking system, right? So uh, uh, this, this again, goes to why people have argued for a very long time that gold is a special asset yeah. itself because it's something that's America-proof right. as long as you physically hold it. Um, right. China has been a big gold right. buyer, um, though they've also had, they, they create debt at a much higher level. That's when the differences between Russia and China that I do think are significant. China, Russia has had a, a very conservative policy in many ways on debt. China has been binging on debt. Um, that, that may play up later. Um, so th they've definitely created this environment where something like gold and, and Russia's demanding purchases um, be made in, in rubles or gold. Um, but we'll see how that, that ends up playing out. It's easier to make these demands in theory um, as, as some posturing. But if sure, this actually sure. holds up and if you sure. get in a situation where Russia has effectively created a way to deal with oil in a lot of major international markets, bypassing the dollar using another resource, I mean, that, that is going to negatively affect in a major, major way um, the value of the dollar as an international reserve currency. Uh, what's also interesting in this is that if you look at the way that different factions have cre been created here, historically, when America has wanted to sanction Al-Qaeda or, or North Korea or Iran, um, you've had more or less kind of global uh, uh, you know, you get global powers lining up behind them and kind of more or less following the line. They, you know, typically, there's some sort of, of actors in there that have a, you know, for, for historical reasons, you know, go, will go around it. But, sure. you know, you, they've kind of had, had the entire world cooperating with them. In this case, you're not really seeing that. Um, you, you, you have the BRIC countries, right? Uh, Brazil and Russia, China, uh, uh, India, uh, uh, South Africa, Mexico has been in this. Uh, it has, has been a opponent of sanctions yep. on Russia. And so what you have is these very significant economies um, that are not Western, right? They're, they're not American, they're not European, yep. um, that are refusing to go along with the demands of DC and the EU on imposing parallel sanctions with Russia. And, and they're not doing so because it turns out that Bolsonaro, who's a right-wing populist president in Brazil, cares more about making sure Brazilians are fed than he is virtue signaling his opposition, <laughs> right. his moral outrage, as righteous as yeah. it would be against, Ukra against the invasion of, of, of Ukraine. And so what this means is that yeah. if you have a lot less international buy-in, particularly from this rising class of nationalist leaders, that is a major, major threat to the you know, dollar hegemony on that America has been able to rely upon. And, and that has gonna play a major role in American politics in the future because you know we've been able to you know, utilize our debt uh, as, as a major resource in the other, you know, we've gotten a lot of real good res uh, products in exchange for simply American debt right. because of its significance globally. Right. Once you start, you know, you, you start having a, a, a crack in there, you know, it's kind of you know, it, things go, go gradually and then suddenly. On that, this is where many economic crises happen. I fear that's a, that's very much within the realm of possibilities. 
And again, I don't look at anyone at the Fed and have any reason to have any confidence that they are aware of what is going on right now. There's nothing in the record the past 20 plus years so that they even comprehend what is going on, particularly when they're you know, talking about transitory inflation uh, you know, not that long ago. The same exact people that misstepped inflation are now what are the ones we're entrusting to, uh, to, to handle you know, these very complex geopolitical monetary issues. Um, in response to a lot of what has happened in Ukraine with Russia and then globally the response of the countries, as you just outlined, um, not a unified front. The CEO or chairman of BlackRock this last week said that this invasion of Ukraine has killed the globalist agenda. And uh, I'd be really interested in your comments on that as to a couple of things. One, what did he mean by that? And two, uh, BlackRock is not going out of business. They still own, you know, much of the world and are continuing to advance. So when he says that, what does he mean and what is the alternative in in the mind of someone like the the chairman of a company like BlackRock. Well, I I, I, I don't dare to, to suggest that I can I get fully into uh, <laughs> sure, his well, mind, of course. <laughs> uh, but I, I do think that you know that there has been this long-standing post-Cold War belief, right, that um, utilizing uh, non uh, uh, you know uh, creating an environment of Stakeholders, I think to use probably the, the popular term, um, that are sure. not only government leaders, um, but leaders of, of industry in an international scale um, that they could rely upon institutions like the World Economic Forum, like the IMF, uh, like, I mean, to, to a certain extent, particularly at its peak, you know, the United Nations, right, that, that you could transcend mm-hmm. the turbulent winds that could exist in, nas- in, in national politics and instead allow for um various powerful entities to have some degree of significant enough global cooperation that you know the real decisions on what's going to guide uh, global politics you know there, there's going to be disagreements on the edge but but there there was abilities to have coordination um beyond the you know what, what democracy might might otherwise create um, and, you know, and it's funny, I mean, this is a lot of stuff that, you know, if, if you look at, uh, you know, former Congressman Larry McDonald um, and others back in the day, you know, this is exactly what they were warning about at the erosion of national sovereignty in mm-hmm. the favor of, you know, various yep. Uh, yep. international, multinational uh, institutions. And of course, if, we, if we're looking at it just in a way that's very relevant to um, the Ukraine-Russia situation, I mean, NATO is an example of one of these, you know, golden age, you know, you know American liberal uh, sort of projects, right? And and you know, how has that turned out over time? You know, NATO is effectively a a, a, a you know, welfare queen with America far over funding. <laughs> uh, you know, essentially the defense of European nations, which has allowed them to to engage in very <laughs> right. aggressive, you know, a lot of government spending, and it's made American taxpayers kind of on the hook for it, right? Um, and so, I, and, and yet, in spite of all of that, we're seeing NATO's plans kind of when confronted with a bully willing to take them seriously. You know, NATO is having issues. Um, and so I, I think those general concerns, I, 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 I think people like BlackRock and, and people like you know, WEF people and Carl Schwab and also, they, they're still very powerful and, and we should not take them for granted. But I do think there's far broader skepticism of the public as a whole because, because now they're being talked about in a way that you'd never otherwise, you know, you would not be having these conversations 
Um, right. If the only way right. that average citizens could talk about the news, you know, still is you know, classic foreign networks and, and whatever is on cable news, um, you know, there's been technological changes that has allowed for global yep. politics to pay greater attention to these agendas. Um, the other side of it, though, is that this has been reflected in the politics of powerful countries. And so where once upon a time, America, you know, most of the global power existed in America and Europe, and therefore um, America could have tremendous amount of influence through, you know, on you know, European politics and therefore you know, yeah. kind, of, kind of use yeah. that as a very influential force to kind of keep everything else at bay. This is a lot harder to do when you know, you've seen the increases in India and Brazil and, and China being the most obvious. Um, and, and what's interesting is that if you look at some of the, the, the Russian thought leaders that have you know, been the most aggressive against Ukraine um, and, and against the West generally, they have, their, their, their long-term goal has been the end of a unipolar American-dominated global hegemony in favor of a multipolar world. And I think what you're hearing is very powerful people mm. are recognizing that that might be exactly what we've had. And, yeah. and again, there, there yeah. is, I think, you know, from, from a, a, a you know, conservative American perspective, there's a, you know, a, a lot of our enemies are within that mix. I think, you know, Washington DC is a far greater threat to your average American, obviously than, than Putin is. And, and I'm very yes. happy yes. to see, um, uh, uh, you know, that group of people uh, feel fear. Um, I, I do think, though, however, um, without justifying that globalism, you know, globalism and, and some of these 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 projects, um, there can also also be recognition that when we these sort of breaks and these sort of massive changes in global realignment, they can have consequences that you know don't always come up with kind of kind of romantic ideas of, of change, um, and, and so I. I what we could create is, is see is a, a situation where a lot of very bad people lose a lot of power. Um, but I'm also concerned about what what can come out of this sort of instability. Um, and because you know the histories of revolutions around the globe um, are not sure. always the most pleasant ones. Yeah, that's right. Man, what an interesting uh, interesting time to be alive. I guess we look at what's happened historically, and we're living through much of that. If you could uh, look in your crystal ball, I think I asked you this last time, and you were right, by the way, last time. We went back and we're talking about it. Um, what are we going to see over the next uh, maybe couple of months and into the next year? We're coming coming into that election season for us, so a lot of this you know, obviously bears um, an impact on that. But economically, what can Americans expect to see in the next several months? Um, I, I wish I had better news. I, I am very much a pessimist in this in, in a big, big way. Um, I, I, I have great concerns that we're going to see, you know, the gas prices like this remain for a very long time. I'm, I'm concerned that we're going to see food sh shortages, the likes of this, which we haven't seen in generations. And I think you have a lot of people that are going to be completely caught off guard by it because we've lived for so long of a time of just continually increasing material well-being that, you know, you've got a lot of Americans that you know, and even if they could think that way, they, they don't have the means to save and, and to create the sort right. of protections necessary. So I'm, I'm very, very concerned. Now, now thankfully, um, you know, the privilege of being Americans is that we are going to be, I think, have, have been in the best situation of just, just about the rest of the world. Um, so, you know, that, that, that is, yeah. you know, and, and that's something we should never lose sight of. The, in spite of how mismanaged and, and, and treacherous 
uh, the policies mm. of the American yeah, regime. That there's a lot of, of strengths that America has that, that most of the world doesn't. And so, you know, while it, even in terms of times, I think we're going to be the best place to be. Um, that being said, I, I think this is going to, to, to last for a very long time. And then I could see a situation where it's not until you have perhaps a, a Trump presidency in 2025 where Trump is running on, you know, let's make America normal again and the first thing out that he does mm. is a bros conference with Putin and Xi and, and Bolsonaro and these nationalist leaders. Mm. It might require mm. a complete change of the American, uh, not, not only the American presidency, um, but an American president that can cleanse the, the bureaucratic administrative state that we have and, and rework the State Department's you know, entire foreign policy agenda um, yeah. and, and creating new relationships with these new rising brick nationalist powers. I, I, I don't know if there's an easy fix in between opening up these global, global supp uh, supply chains. And I'm skeptical about how easy it will be to turn back on you know, our, our economic relationship with Russia um, and, and some of these other countries as well. So I, I'm, I'm unfortunately don't have a lot of, of good news to, to, to offer there. Um, my mm. hope is that this will spark the political changes that America has needed for a very long time. Uh, because you know, it, it, it's not until again, your average American right. really starts feeling the pain of bad government policies do you end up you know, tending to, tend to see you know, genuine political change. And so you know, hard times you know, you can you create the strong men that can deliver good times. And hopefully uh, we still have a, strong, a few strong men left in America. And it's, it's also very interesting is I, I think an, an element that was completely underappreciated a few months ago is that when China destroyed all of its mine, Bitcoin mining rigs, I think, as someone who is very concerned about China as a, as a geopolitical threat, that was a very good thing. And it also reflected how weak I think China's economy actually is because Bitcoin is, if, if you're looking to weaken the dollar's control over the global, you know, over the global economy, Bitcoin's an obvious weapon in there. Um, and I think that, that's why you've seen uh, uh, Russia and even to a certain extent, China sort of backtrack a little bit uh, in the recent months on this. Mm. Uh, I, I do think Bitcoin can, can be that answer the beauty of it is that even if you have aggressively hostile policies, it still it still will be there. Um, so the question is then, how do we create a policy uh, set that can really allow it to thrive? And and my hope, and, and I've had some some very interesting conversations with congressional staffers, um, candidates running for office right now. Um, there, there's one really one big trick the Republicans could do um, that. Would, would completely change the game. Uh, you know, one of the things I really believe is the, the war must feed the war. And so conservatives must get serious about identifying ways in which we can financially enrich interest groups that are aligned with our policies. And people that own gold, people that own mm. Bitcoin, these are people far more skeptical of the regime in Wall Street than everyone else. Um, and so we should be looking at ways on you know, making those, you know, those numbers go up. And since the only thing the Republican Party is good at is passing a tax cut. Ron Paul back in the day had a competing currency bill that eliminated taxes on gold, silver, and cryptocurrency, which allowed these to compete without any sort of tax burdens against Federal Reserve notes. And so if you're an average American and you want to place your savings in gold or Bitcoin, um, you won't have to pay a tax if that goes up in value and then turn it into mm. to dollars so you pay a mortgage or whatever, right? Um, if Republicans if, if you had if you had three four good Republicans that recognized the importance of this, uh, and particularly when you consider like the political persecution aspect, right? You know, conservatives should be recognizing the way that you know Wall Street will go after us. Um, 
if, yeah. if they simply said, we are not going to pass the next Republican tax plan without eliminating the taxes on Bitcoin, silver, and cryptocurrency, then that's the biggest game change in the world. All the regulatory nonsense that the SEC and, and these government regulators are trying to place out the window. You've, you've, you've sliced the Gordian knot because you've taken away the tax, tax consequences. And if you do that, then, yeah. I mean, not only not, that'd be really bad for the dollar um, and, and, and ways that are good, um, but that really gets things where, where we can actually you know, get, get something closer to a non-government manipulated currency. And, and that is vital to everything. So, Bishop, man, I really appreciate, once again, your insights. Uh, you're so articulate on such difficult topics, <laughs> and uh, I appreciate that. Where can people follow you and uh, read your work and listen to the other things that you say? I appreciate the comments. Um, you can find uh, most of my work is published at Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org. We've got a great uh, daily n- newsletter on there that you know you'll get economic commentary and a lot of these sort of larger scale awesome. perspectives you, you know, in a way you won't get most other places. Um, you also find me at Twitter at uh, Tho Bishop. Um, you know it's, it's a weird name, so I'm, that's my handle on just about every social media platform I'm on. Um, and if, if anyone's out there interested in sort of you know beginner economic work, um, begineconomics.com. We've got a great animated video series there that I wrote. And we will soon have a new animated series um, based off of what has government done to our money that will really t- dive into the money issue awesome. uh, and the consequences of that, that we, you know, the government uh, politicalization of money have played in a variety of different ways in American society. Yeah, that's good. So, Bishop, thank you very much, man. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their lives. He created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you and me. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. Mike's latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. Sale of the year. That means it's not going to happen again. This is the sale of the year. What is it? For a limited time, you will receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You will receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code SITREP. Along with this offer, you will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. For those of you that would rather use the phone, and some of you are out there, you know who you are, call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or MyPillow.com and use the promo code SITREP. Very grateful for that conversation. And though, as he was kind of bringing it all together, he said, I don't have a lot of hopeful information, but I'll tell you, having the right information allows us to prepare for what's coming. And sometimes that's it. When we talk about having the information and perspectives, we need to navigate an ever-changing culture. So often it's listening to truth tellers who can help us understand what's on the horizon that gives us the information we need to know exactly what we should do. And then at the very end, uh, he certainly did give some hopeful uh, insights into some ways that the economy can be managed and we'll see what happens. But be prepared. 
Look at the world around you. Understand that what is happening in the world will impact you, whether it's tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now, and begin preparing. A very, very helpful conversation with Tho. Thank you for listening. Make sure that you are subscribed to The Situation Report on your favorite podcast platform. That is the very best way to stay in touch with us. And we'd love to continue having these conversations with you. Thank you. And we will talk to you next time. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.